This is the API Academy podcast, and I'm your host, Ronnie Mitra. I'm joined today by my colleague, Mike Amundsen. In this episode, we're tackling culture design, or the creation of culture, specifically as it pertains to things like microservices or building applications. Uh, probably for a lot of you, just like myself, when we think about building architectures or building applications, we don't often sit down and design the culture for the teams who are building those applications. And yet more and more we're hearing that culture and organization are essential elements to making all of that work. There's a lot of questions that we're going to try and grapple with today. Uh, how does culture actually impact the development of applications? How do we actually design culture? And can we design it in the first place? But to start off, we're going to have to agree on what culture is. Uh, and for my part, this is usually how I define it. When I think of culture, I think about behaviors. And what culture really is for a team is the summation of everyone's individual behaviors, kind of forming a, a boundary or an outline. If we put a boundary around the behaviors that a team or an organization finds acceptable, that would be the culture. Another way to look at it is the culture is kind of like the personality of the team or the organization. If we could turn your team into a person, its culture would be how it behaves and what its personality is. Mike, I know you talk about culture a lot. Um, how do you describe culture when you're trying to introduce it? Yeah, I, I typically fall back on a thing that Damon Edwards has said. He's a big DevOps uh, person. And uh, I think the phrase is, culture is the way we do it here. That's the notion that um, the way things get done around here and the processes and the, and the, the ways we think about things, that's the culture here. Yeah, I think that sums it up nicely, too. It's, it's a, a simple way of saying it's, it's all of our behaviors. Uh, you mentioned something else, though, when you describe it. It's all about how we think, right? Yeah. It's not just what we do, but it's about what we believe, it's our values. Uh, you know, one of the challenging things I find is that everything impacts culture, and culture seems to impact everything. Yeah. Uh, now, we did want to focus on things like microservices and, and technology, uh, in your experience, how does culture impact, you know, my ability to build a microservice? Oh yeah, there there are lots of uh, lots of ways that that happens. The size of the team, the uh, the way we commit code, whether or not testing is native inside the group versus outside the group as a separate uh, entity, whether or not deployment is handled by the group or it's another entity. These will all affect the the culture of of what I'm responsible for, what I turn over to someone else, um, and, and how much uh, control or influence I have on the final deployment product. So to me, that's a lot of culture right there. So if we, if we think about microservices in particular, a lot of the time we're focused on what? Um, speed of change is important, uh, but also making that change safe, doing it at scale. Uh, if you and I had to sit down right now and list maybe cultural traits or values or properties that would be useful for achieving speed and safety at scale? What, what would some of those be? Well, um, so, yeah, we talk about this speed and safety part quite a bit. So there needs to be something about uh, reliability, like how reliable is what you're, what you're building? Um, what's your sort of cultural value on clean code, like how we write code here? 
um, how often you check in and whether or not you write tests that has to do with safety uh, speed might have to do with whether or not we're scaling things in a certain way. So that's going to affect the way we, we build or we write code as well. So there's this kind of list of properties or principles that we'll start to talk about, like reliability and scalability and security and um, these things that we commonly call illities. Those become kind of principles or, or key points that we use to measure whether or not we're doing things the way we do it here. So is that... Are those illities or properties, those are software properties, or are we now talking about peopleware? Well, I think we're talking about both, right? So you might even have a property which says you can't make a change to the code unless somebody else uh, agrees with you. In other words, you have to enlist someone else to see the code. That increases the visibility and changes who can change, you know, change what part of code. Um, you might even have things like... Uh, uh, we have to have stand-ups or things that, you know, talk along the Agile and Scrum line, which means that we're creating some kind of visibility in the group. Uh, you might have things that basically say developers have to write the tests so, the te so they are responsible for the outcome and, and things like that. You might even have things like uh, certain protocols or languages or formats are controlled outside the group or inside the group, or the tools that you use are controlled by the group or somebody else. And those are all cultural elements as well. I'm going to pick up on some of the words you use there because they come up a lot, I find, when we're talking about microservices. Responsibility. In particular, personal responsibility seems to come up a lot, right? We have a culture of personal responsibility. People take accountability for what they create. And often that is going hand in hand with autonomy, right? So a lot of the companies we talk to who are building software in a way that they can make changes very quickly, the people who do the work seem to have autonomy in how they do the work. And with that autonomy comes the idea that, you know, if something goes wrong, they kind of have the responsibility of fixing that mistake, right? Would you, are you finding that, that that's kind of the stereotypical culture now for a microservices team? Yeah. Um, and, and there's two, there's two edges to that. So I do see people talk a lot about pressing a lot of the decision-making uh, deeper and deeper into the organization to try to get teams themselves who are responsible for producing something to have as, as much autonomy as they possibly can so that they can make decisions. Uh, they don't have to wait for someone else to decide. That has to do with the speed idea, that we can decide on, on what's best. Um, at the same time, a lot of organizations that I visit with and talk to are having a real hard time with this idea of placing more and more trust further and further into the organization. They've built up their own culture, which means that you ask for permission to do things or you, you, you know, talk up the chain, you work in a very hierarchical way. And just saying that we're going to let uh, people further into the system make these decisions can be very disruptive and there may not be enough infrastructure or support to do that. So I think that's one of the challenges in the microservice space. We, I think we talk a lot about culture because we're trying to change in many cases the way organizations operate in order to get this microservice experience. Okay, then here's the question. Uh, for those, those kinds of companies you talk about where, you know, there's kind of this uh, culture of asking for permission. There's some coordination, right? A coordination mechanism. I'm not going to use the word bureaucracy, which, by the way, shouldn't be a bad word, right? That's just describing something. But there's some kind of um, coordination people have to do that's formalized. Are those actually just artifacts as people transition to cultures that fit the microservices space? So, in other words... Is a company like that inevitably going to lose that culture if they start implementing many small services? What do you think? 
Um, you know, I'm not really sure. It's really, really a good question. When I, when I, I talk to companies now, I tend to talk about how standardization reduces the amount of coordination or the amount of meetings or other things that I have to do. Whereas these meetings tend to be sort of one-off experiences. We need to get together and decide and coordinate with each other before we do a release. Standardization can kind of create a process or a new sort of way of automating a particular step in, in there. So I think what some companies are doing is they're actually taking some of the one-off manual decision-making that are that are done in real time and trying to turn that into some standard pattern. Now, I tend to talk about standards versus coordination, but you've talked about that slightly differently, right? Your, ex your experience is a little bit different about the, what those two words mean and whether or not they're the same thing, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and I've been informed by, uh, there's a guy named Henry Mintzberg. I believe that's his name, a professor at, I think it's Queens, uh, what he ended up doing in the 80s or early 90s was he digested a lot of the management literature and organizational design studies and turned that into this, this book called Structure in Fives, which is really hard to find. But I managed to get a copy of it and I read it. And where the light bulb kind of went off was he describes standardization as a way of coordinating teams or people. So if you standardize on who is doing the work, the work happens in a specific way, or we can standardize on how work is done, and you'll get some coordination from that, right? Probably most interesting for us in this space is you could standardize on what people create, what they produce. And the kind of microservice version of that is to have an organizational culture where we say, we don't, we don't mind how you do your work, as long as the service you create conforms to some kind of API standard or style guide or, or something like that. So you can get that kind of autonomy with coordination, but it's still based on a standard. It's not coordination or having a standard. It's using a standard to coordinate, right? Yeah. And I think that, that creates a type of culture. Yeah, that's, that's actually really fascinating. I, I, I haven't had a chance to read the Mintzberg book because I haven't found a copy yet. So hopefully, I'll, I'll, you've mentioned this before and I'll get a copy. But I like that idea, especially of standardizing on output for microservices. Because essentially what I find people are doing in order to make all these small bits work, they need to create some kind of uniform way that the parts all interact with each other. And I think that's a lot of what we've talked about in terms of APIs and, and uniform interface and people use the REST model and all these other things as a way to try to standardize on that. And I think the more you can standardize the way these parts communicate, the easier it is to gain speed when you're trying to build something in, in some kind of way. So, so I think that applies a lot. What I find fascinating is it almost sounds like, especially from, from what you've been telling me about Mintzberg, is you start to create some uniform interfaces in the way people interact with each other. And that's going to actually end up reflecting in the uniform interfaces in the output or the microservices that they create, right? Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, if you, if you chose to standardize on, on that part of it, absolutely. But there are other parts to standardize. That, that's the other thing that you've said before, right? Yeah, I think this is, a, this is kind of a key point, isn't it? Um, firstly, the word standard somehow became a bad word right? right? within the last five or ten years. It's actually a reality. Uh, you're going to introduce constraints into your team or your group or your company. And I think what we're finding is that culture 
actually becomes kind of a measure of what happens to the system after you've introduced all those constraints, right? So I introduce constraints or standards, which is probably going to give rise to behaviors. And then the aggregate of all those behaviors is, is our culture. And the implication there, I guess, is if we want to design culture, what do we do? We play with the constraints, with the standards. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And, and it makes sense to me because from a sort of IT point of view, that's the same pattern I think about, which is I want to get a certain outcome in this system that I'm building. So I'm going to set up some constraints so that I get the properties I'm interested in. And, and I sort of take that as a, you know, I'm sort of planning the way this system's going to work. So, so that makes sense for me from an IT perspective, right? So I, I think it's very, very much parallel. So what's the big constraint that everyone talks about? The one, I mean, no one's talking about Mintzberg. Everyone's talking about someone named Conway, right? That's coming up again and again. And the constraint is the way we communicate in an organization impacts the system the system we produce. Um, I know you've, you've talked a lot with Mel Conway. Uh, we've had the pleasure of having him actually speak at some of our conferences, which is very exciting, right? If you're in this field, what do you think the impact of things like Conway's law is on culture? Yeah. Um, my, you know, sort of the popular view is that Conway teaches us about an inevitability, which is the one you mentioned, which is the way we communicate uh, ends up con uh, affecting the what we produce. And uh, there are lots of examples of this um, throughout IT. If you've got four teams that are building one piece of software, you're going to get four units of software, so on and so forth. You've got three teams, you get three units of software and things like that. And Mel, one of the things that, that, that Mel Conway talks about is he originally, when he came up with this notion about the inevitability of how organizations affect output, it wasn't limited just to software. It wasn't even limited just to IT. He was thinking about things like the United Nations and communities and schools and everything. The, the way you communicate, the, the groups, the communities, the, the, the committees, all that affect output, um, which I thought is really, really fascinating. Now, um, he you know, he published this 50 years ago, 1967. And um, although it's, you know, come in and out of vogue over the decades, recently microservice people have really started talking about it. And when I talked to Mel, Mel is a bit surprised that Microsoft microservice people think this is kind of a magic bullet or a magic formula that if you just arrange your teams in a right way, you get the code you want. And uh, I think when you, when you sort of talk to him about it, he, he makes it a little less uh, clear as to exactly how much you can fiddle with this and how much is just the nature of the way groups, you know, communicate. So that, that's almost alluding to what some people call the inverse Conway or reverse Conway maneuver, right? Right. Where if I... If I structure the team a certain way, um, I'll get these great effects. And maybe one of those effects might be the kind of culture we're talking about. And, and what you're saying is, Mel is actually saying there's probably more to it than that? Yes. Yeah. Um, there are a lot more subtleties. There's more to it. Mel is also focused a lot on the tools that you have. It isn't just how you arrange teams or the size of them or anything. It's actually the tools you have available to you in order to affect things or the processes that you have in place. So it's, it's more than just uh, the team size or the team arrangement. There are all these other things that are really important to him as well. That makes a lot of sense to me because I, I think it's easy to conflate 
culture and organizational structure. In my mind, those are two different things, right? How I set up the reporting relationship or the hierarchy or how we communicate as teams informs culture, but is not the same as culture. And like you said, things like tools introduce other kinds of constraints. Um, you and I have talked about this before. As tools change, there is an inevitable impact on culture. Um, you've been in the workplace for a long time, if I could say it. It's a polite way of saying you have a lot of experience. <laughs> and you've, you've worked in environments that predate email, right? Yes, yes. And would I be wrong in saying that was a pretty different culture? Oh, I mean, I've seen yeah. documentaries like the Flintstones. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. How old do you think? <laughs> no, you're, you're exactly right. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I was just recently talking to someone um, about this notion of memo culture. Uh, you know, I, I started uh, in, an, in an era when memo was how you communicate with people. So you wrote memos. And often you didn't actually write the memo. You had someone who took shorthand, who then typed it up and showed it to you to make sure it was okay before it was photocopied and placed in everybody's little bin and box. I mean, this was a really very different way of communicating. It was much more structured, much more hierarchical, and it turned out that collecting information at these various nodes in a hierarchy was a really important way to manage an organization. So yeah, we communicated in a very, very, very different way, uh, and... I would tell you, it didn't, doesn't seem like it was that long ago that we did it. <laughs> and there's obviously an inevitable cultural imp Even if nothing else changed, just by changing the tool, something seems to change in the aggregate. Right? Yeah. And, and, and specifically in, in this sort of memo culture, what's changed over the decades has been the speed at which uh, something that comes to my head ends up in someone else's hands. Right. So I used to have to think about it and then, you know, get a get a formal memo and then get someone to write up the memo and then get someone to show me the memo and then get somebody to copy the memo. And then the, then it went out. So it would be hours, if nothing else, if possibly days, depending on it. So now with the idea of email and, and now chat and all these other things, it's a matter of seconds before some you know blip of an idea I have can be sent to lots and lots of places. And that sets up a pattern sets up a rhythm, sets up some speed expectations on the way we think code ought to work as well. Like if I get an idea for an app, it should be, you know, very, very quickly before someone sees something. I think that has a lot to do with this too. There's a, there's a similar cultural change happening around deployment to production, right? Years ago, the idea of changing what was running in production uh, was a, you know, almost like the memo. It, it took a lot to make a change we had to really make sure everything worked before you did the change. And the change itself would take a lot of time. Uh, and more and more now with different kinds of tools and processes, with things like containerization, uh, with, with iterative abilities to change, with the people within the team having more, let's call it horizontal responsibility. They can do lots of more things, not just coding, but they also take care of configuration and deployment. It feels similar to email in that way, right? We've, we've changed the constraints. Now change is just part of our culture? Yeah. And I, I think one of the challenges is this notion that when processes and tools change, when, when tools change, sometimes processes don't keep up. You know, even in an email world, I could have a memo culture in my head. Like I'm going to craft this email. It's going to take some time. 
uh, and, and, and you know it, it's not going to go out very often, and so on and so forth. So so the same thing happens in writing code. The same things happens in deploying code. Yes, it's true that I could deploy some you know some small change quickly, but that's not our culture here. We're still going to deploy it in memo style. We're still going to collect up lots of changes from lots of people in a sort of a hierarchy, and so on and so forth. So I think what happens is you get some culture clash between processes that are available and tools that are available and how we actually do it here. And I think that's some of the challenge that people are facing today is like, maybe we need to start thinking about changing what we do to closer match the tools that are available. Right. And the, the email from the head of the company probably feels a lot more like how a memo was written. And maybe the change to a core financial transaction system feels a little bit more like how change was done years and years ago, right? Context seems to matter as well. Yeah. One thing that starts to become obvious, though, as we talk is that this ability to do lots of changes quickly seems pretty important culturally, right? So if I'm thinking about what kind of culture I want for my microservices teams, this idea of embracing change feels important. I guess the tougher question is, uh, how do we design a culture that has that property. Yeah, so design a culture that has that property of of being able to change more quickly, right? Right. Yeah, I think um, it, it's a it, it's a real good challenge. The way that I've been seeing it play out, uh, and people start to gravitate toward this notion that um, each change I make uh, needs to be small and safe. It doesn't need to be perfect. In other words, there's sort of a change. When it turns out that the deployments are rare, like once a quarter, once a month, or something like that, now they have to be very, very good because we're not going to be able to change this again for another 30 days or possibly another 90 days. So it becomes a sort of a high bar to get into the, into the change. Whereas if it turns out if I can do changes every day, I can make them a lot smaller, and it's okay if it's not exactly right because I can do another one tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. So you get this this notion of continuously being able to nudge the system in the right direction rather than having to do these big bursts and be very, very careful that your aim is always accurate. So I think that's a big part of setting up a system where you can make a number of changes reduces the risk in each individual change. And do you think that's a... A universally applicable kind of thing. So I'm just I'm just imagining in my head. Can can everyone incorporate change in that way in every context? Well, I think so. I and I think like you like you you've said a couple of times, context is key, right? So it may be that an organization that releases twice a year would have a huge benefit if they could release once a quarter, right? Or if they could release once a month. They don't have to do the day after day after day in order to actually get a huge benefit. And some organizations may have to lean a lot on safety. In other words, they may have to get a lot of assurance because they're in a regulatory environment or because what they're doing is, you know, is very critical. So, you know, that, that'll change over time. But I think the idea is making change uh, safe, cheap, and easy is really the goal. Not the speed, not a particular speed, but actually making change safer is what you want to go for. Yeah, safer as a a value makes a lot of sense. It it kind of hits on something that uh, anytime you design, whether it's culture or product or or anything you're making, it's got to support some kind of a goal, right? So we have to have a goal in mind. We have to have some idea of what we're trying to achieve. Uh, What I'm hearing a lot from, from what both of us are saying is for 
small teams building things. The goal seems to be, you know, how do we either make change faster or safer, right? And everything kind of stems from that idea, which makes sense. Uh, the other thing that you're talking about is maybe reducing the scope of what you're deploying, the scope of what you're changing, which is another kind of constraint. So you can play with the constraint model in a couple of different ways, I guess, right? We can talk about giving people more autonomy, giving them more responsibility, more freedom, right? Which will have some kind of impact. Maybe we have to hire smarter people, I don't know. Or the other kind of change is to change the constraint about the size of a, of a change. So if I'm optimizing for safety, uh, do you think it makes sense to start doing smaller deployments, smaller releases? Um, short answer is yes. Um, I think what, there's, there's another part of this. I think if you're optimizing for safety, um, you start thinking about how can I make this system safer? One of the things I want to be able to do is make sure that if I do make a change and it's not good, I can back it out instantly, right? So I'll invest in optimizing that part of change. So I'm not just changing forward, but I'm also changing backward. In other words, change is, is not just uh, adding, adding, adding. Maybe change means I undo what just happened. And then if I want to focus on safety, as you mentioned, I probably want to limit the scope of each individual change. In other words, I want to reduce the number of unexpected outcomes from a change. The smaller the scope, the easier it is for me to sort of grok or figure out what that change would be. So I think that's why you see smaller, uh, smaller uh, packages in deployment. It's primarily to increase the safety, not necessarily to increase the speed. Um, so I think those are some real good examples of increasing safety that I'm going to make the changes so that they can be backed out. I'm going to make the changes smaller so that it's less likely that they're going to impact large parts of the system. So I think that's a good example of, of sort of, um, improving safety through change. These things make sense that you're describing. I just wonder, you know, I can't recall the last time I sat in a room helping someone build an application where we wrote something like culture on the whiteboard and started talking about it in these terms, right? Like inevitably we'll talk about deployment and we'll think about, well, maybe we could change the scope of this. But no one ever says, you know, we should think about what kind of culture we need to get the, get the properties we need. Are, are you seeing that anywhere? Or are you just in the right rooms and I'm not? Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a little bit of self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, some customers ask me to come in and talk about culture. So now culture is on the board. Uh, okay. But I will admit that when that happens, this is a sort of a rarefied event. This is, this is not the typical day-to-day, -day I need to get code out. This is a let's stop talking about code and let's start talking about culture. This is sort of creating this separation, which I think you and I uh, experience and we've sort of talked about here. That separation doesn't exist in real life. Culture is sort of imbued in everything we do. So, um, yeah, I think there are definitely cases where people want to talk about culture specifically. Uh, and I think what happens is in real life, everything we do is part of this cultural mix. Um, and the way I know that's true is when I'm in the room and we start talking about things like we just did about uh, number of changes and the scope of changes and things like that. What I hear back is, yeah, well, the problem is in our organization, dot, 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 they fill in a space, which is really a cultural decision. We have teams separated or we don't, we can't get on the change change log except for once a month and so on and so forth. So they start telling us about 
cultural decisions, things, uh, technical decisions that have turned into, into culture and that becomes a challenge. So now you start focusing on what can we actually do? There's kind of an interesting supplement to that, right? Which is then that context is important because when you and I talk about system change, we say, you know, in your context, you might have to adjust this, but context doesn't have to be concrete, right? So if the context is a result of the culture and not maybe the business model or like the tax law of the country you're in, maybe that context could change. Um, I think that's important. Okay, the other, the other thing that this kind of touches on is the idea that culture doesn't live in isolation. So uh, whether we're talking about the culture of a, a country or a city or a neighborhood or an organization or a team, these are kind of nested things, right? So my culture depends on outside cultures. This is especially true when we talk about microservices and web application teams. You know, I might have a team of six people, a mix of developers and other kinds of roles, but we live within a company culture. Um, one of the challenges can be, you know, if we want to create a culture that's vastly different from the outside, how do you in fact do that? How do you stop the outside constraints from becoming inside constraints. Have you seen any of this? Yeah, um, definitely seen uh, some of this and, and had some experience uh, outside the IT space doing some of this. Culture change is, um, is, a real, is a real, real challenge. So typically what happens is you end up isolating something. You put a kind of a, a boundary around uh, a team, uh, either physically, like you move them to a new location, or uh, you create some, some boundary that says, we do things different in this group. And then you start to grow a culture. You start to grow a different way of doing things uh, in that small group. And again, it's all sort of like a small release. It's like, I'm going to do this in a small group. I'm not going to try to attempt this in one big shot. And then you work that. And then if that is successful, you start using that particular starter to seed other kinds of uh, parts of the organization. And it is not, it's, it's a real challenge because even separating a small group of people and treating them differently is now a change to the overall culture. How come those people dress funny? How come those people don't do it the way we do it? How come those people don't have to come in at eight, eight in the morning? There are all sorts of things that immediately happen. As soon as you change just one small aspect of it, you're changing the whole thing. Yeah, and the interesting thing there, you, you kind of implied there is a you, there's a, there is someone who's kind of responsible, who has the authority, the information, uh, and the ability to make these decisions, right? To say, well, let's, let's try and ring fence this particular team and do a little cultural experiment there. And if that works, we're going to let them kind of infect the wider organization. Uh, you know, it's not always clear to me who that person is going to be. Uh, it can also be a challenge if we're talking about a smaller team. Does every small team have a leader? Or is it possible to kind of collectively design a culture? I think that can happen by accident. I'm not sure if it's necessarily a good thing. Uh, it definitely happens, you know, by accident or by design. Um, uh, I was told years and years ago uh, by someone in a you know rather large organization, they said, Mike, what you've got to have is a little larceny in you. In other words, you have to be able to lie a little bit. Um, uh, you have to, you might even go ahead and create a team 
and then create a buffer physically. Like, I'll, you know, I'll, you guys go ahead and do whatever you think is necessary. I'll lie to the rest of the organization and say everything is fine. There are people like this inside organizations where what they really do is they act, they sort of carry water for a team. And they, uh, the phrase that I've heard is they sort of hold back the crazy on the rest of the organization while the team does what they want. And that can result in some real problems. So it, if it turns out that the culture that starts to grow that's being hidden here is not healthy, it's problematic, it's costly, it becomes a fiefdom, it becomes a problem, then it can really damage uh, product services and the overall culture of an organization. But it happens in lots and lots of places, especially large organizations where it's pretty easy to hide subculture somewhere in some location or some other part of the organization that most people don't see. And if you've ever had the experience of being acquired by a large organization, you know that feeling of being in a smaller team that has to now adapt to a different set of constraints, a different set of uh, maybe structures and processes, and you see the culture changing. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. actually acquisitions a great example. Acquisition mergers, we experience this in IT a lot. Uh, those are great examples of when you suddenly see cultures rub up against each other. Uh, interestingly, I've even heard of cases where large companies buy smaller companies because of their culture, right? So it's not just a, a people acquisition, it's a culture acquisition. We wish we could operate more like you. We wish we had your beliefs. Yeah. I, ha I haven't heard of any cases of that succeeding, but I think it's, a, it's an important intent. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting question. Because as you were saying that, I was thinking the same thing. Like, can I think of an example like that? And I can't yet, but I bet they're out there. And they're probably both positive and negative examples. We know of cases where acquisitions are made because of intellectual property, like, you know, we want this patent, or there are acquisitions that are made because of uh, customer uh, collection or uh, some other uh, technology, uh, uh, you know, pattern or process, as well as the way they do things here. These are the young Turks. These are the new kids. We want the rest of our organization to be like this. And that's probably a fascinating area to explore. Yeah, I'd say it's symptomatic of a general culture envy I'm seeing a lot of, which is kind of what you're alluding to here. Every large company that I deal with seems to kind of have that... Um, idea that Bezos describes, we can operate like a large company or we can have the power of a big company, I should say, but we are going to act and behave like a small startup. The, the startup culture has become a bit idyllic, right? I mean, everyone wants that. Yeah, I think, I think people are, are very romantic about the idea of startups, right? We tell all these stories about how HP was a startup and Apple was a startup and Google was a startup and Facebook was a startup. We, we love this notion. Um, the reality, of course, the mathematical realities are like most startups don't do well. Most startups uh, uh, end up failing and so on and so forth, but we get very romantic about it. So when somebody is successful, we think if we could just be like them, I think, I think you're probably right in that score. I hadn't really thought about it as we talk about the culture space, but there is a culture envy in a, in a lot of aspects. Um, we want to be able to be like, and then point over to something over there. And one of those organizations that um, I hear a lot of people want to be like is Netflix. Netflix actually has a, a presentation they published. Uh, it was Patty McCord who designed it when she was at Netflix. And it talks about their culture. Uh, and it's been incredibly influential in our industry. People read this deck. They love it. Uh, I have to admit, I'm impressed by it. I'm an admirer of what they put together. Uh, what's, what's interesting about it is it describes just a few properties 
for creating the culture they want. So instead of a very long document with lots of rules about how to behave, what they try and do is, is boil it down to a few things. Uh, Mike, you've seen this, I assume, the, the McCord deck. Yeah, I've, I've, seen, I've seen the McCord deck several times. They, they kind of have this notion of principles that they want to teach people. Um, these are the principles that we operate on. They talk about um, how we're all supposed to be uh, loosely coupled but tightly aligned. In other words, we're all working towards the same goals, but we don't have to do it the same way. They have these measures about wanting to always, uh, you know, pick from the top of the pile and be the best, and 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 they even have what what's one of the ones that's kind of interesting is no no jerks, right? Is that is that one of the, I think that's one of theirs. Um, they don't like uh, cowboy types. They don't. It doesn't matter how smart you are if you're a jerk. You're not. You're not really welcome in that culture. So yeah. So they try to teach people these sets of values and principles as a primary way. Uh, of training, of creating their culture and training their employees. Now, what's the impact been of that? I mean, I've seen a lot of derivatives of that deck for a specific company. So here, here's the important question. Is that wrong? Is it wrong to look at what Netflix did? I mean, we, we borrow their tools for microservices. Is it okay to also, you know, more or less copy and paste the culture deck and maybe just change the names and change a few of the properties, massage it a bit? What do you think? In general, I say it's wrong. In other words, there's so much context to this that it, it's really you really need to be really, really careful. Um, I sort of liken it to wearing somebody else's suit. You know, it might be a great suit, but it was tailored for someone else and it might not look too good on you. Um, it's very specific. Uh, usually these, uh, these sort of directives, whether it's the, the code that Netflix gives away or the you know, HR deck that they give away, it's usually the product of several years of trial and error. And so there's a lot of experience that's missing from the final product that everyone has to kind of like suffer through. Uh, and it's very much in context for the organization, their mission statement, uh, and what they're trying to do, which is global streaming uh, kind of service. So I think it's important to look at these things as models, but not as instances. In other words, oh, I see they have some principles, they have, they have some operating statements, they have some values that they teach. We should probably have principles and operational statements and values, not necessarily just take the ones that uh, Netflix has. Uh, and let's be honest, it's entirely possible, in fact, it's likely, that whatever you come up with will look similar, right? I mean, the properties you end up with might look a lot like Netflix's properties, especially if you're interested in speed of change, right? And being very innovative, because those are things that uh, Netflix tries to do. But that's kind of not the point. It's not just about identifying the properties. It's about that journey of introspection, of kind of understanding what it means to induce those properties, what it would mean for your organization. I think it's exactly as you say. This is kind of the output of some kind of journey that the people at, at Netflix took. Uh, and there's a lot more to it than just saying it. Culture doesn't happen because you distribute a presentation, right? Culture happens because there's a belief behind it and there's, there's execution. So kind of on that note, you know, we, we've talked about design. We touched on the idea of implementation. Um, what do you think are the keys for, I, I have an idea of the culture we want. I've identified some properties we need. How do I actually implement that into the people? getting it to, to stick. Wow. I mean, I, I don't know. That's sort of a where do I begin kind of question, right? I, I think 
What I've seen work is when you, sh- when you start with the goal in mind, in other words, you start with what is it we want to be doing here? And, and these are pretty high level things and you need to get buy-in on the goal. Our goal is to make sure that customers never see Buffer when they're watching movies at our website, so on and so on and so forth. So you have like a goal in mind. And then you figure out, well, if we all agree on the goal, what are some of the principles that can get us there? And one of the advantages, you treat culture the way we were talking about change earlier in code. In other words, if you all share the goal, you can pick a technique in order uh, to try to get there. And if it doesn't work, you can change it because we're all still sharing the same goal. If you, however, sort of decide what we're going to do is use this technique without, you know, knowing the goal, you're going to get married to the technique whether it works or not, right? So you end up creating this space where everybody shares the same general outcome. Then you start talking about what do you think? How how are we going to do this? And depending on your context, how much you ask individuals is up to you. But then you start experimenting to get there and you constantly think about that goal. That becomes a way to start changing culture. So the only constant is change, which is another reason why, you know, copying and pasting culture doesn't work because you never learn how to study it, how to change it and how to adjust. Uh, Absolutely. When you and I have been talking about culture, it does seem very uh, logical, deterministic, like we actually can make culture do what we want. Uh, Now, we have talked about nudges. We acknowledge there's a system, but, you know, there's a theme that comes up a lot. Uh, We talk about having a goal and moving the system towards a goal. Uh, you know, but when, I, when I've done research on culture, a lot of the times I get the impression people don't necessarily design culture as much as maybe inherit it or accidentally create it. And then they're happy with the results. So they don't really change it. And then they advertise it. Um, one example that comes to mind, there's a startup called Buffer who really advertises their culture of transparency. Now, amazingly, I, I can't find... Uh, any interviews or, or, or research around why they have a culture of transparency. But they believe it works, so they keep doing it. Um, I don't know what you're seeing in, in your travels. Are people in, intentionally designing culture? For the most part, no. And um, I think that pretty much tracks with most everyone's experience. Uh, we don't have a chief cultural officer in any company that I visit. Um, but we still have a culture. Right. So while the culture may not have been actively uh, designed and may not be uh, constantly managed, you still have one. And it turns out, as we talked about earlier, um, you probably have lots of subcultures. The larger your organization, the more subcultures you have. So it, as, as you get larger, as you grow out of some small group into larger and larger groups or you get merged into a larger group, Um, The culture continues on even if no one is tending it. And if you're not careful, the culture can actually be damaging to the system, damaging to your brand, to your product, to your employees. So it it turns out paying attention is really important. You don't have to be uh, this grand wizard that controls what people say, think, and do, but tending to the culture and paying attention to what's going on in different parts of the organization in order to nudge it in a positive direction, I think is really, really important. So I think a lot of what we're talking about is not necessarily trying to get people to design culture, but getting people to be aware of it and sort of understanding the levers that they have in order to nudge things in a direction that's positive for them. 
That makes a lot of sense. So in summation, culture could be a measure of how your system is doing. It could be a way of increasing autonomy because people have beliefs that are shared, that align with with a business goal. Uh, Ultimately, it sounds like culture is something you need to be at least aware of. You need to keep track of it. You may not be able to shape it and make it do exactly what you want, uh, but if you don't know what your culture is, that's probably the first place you want to start. Figure out what the personality of your team, your organization, or your system is. We're going to shift gears now as we close the show with our regular segment, Point Counterpoint. Uh, If you're a new listener, this is a a really small part of the show where we enter into a little mini-debate. I'm going to give Mike a point to argue, uh, and I myself, I'm going to take the counterpoint. So I'm going to step down and actually get into the scrum here. We're going to see who can present the better argument in one minute uh, with the disclaimer that... uh, Nothing that we say in this segment should be quotable. Uh, I don't want to see any of this show up on Twitter because we're bound to say something ridiculous, uninformed, and outrageous. In fact, that's my goal. Well, that's why you're a six-time loser. (laughs) All right, so your point, Mike, is going to have to do with a a quote that is attributed to Peter Drucker uh, and... No one is really sure if Peter Drucker said this, but it's attributed to him often enough that we're going to use it. The quote is, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Mike, you're going to argue that this is in fact true. Culture does eat strategy for breakfast. And I will present the counterpoint. And I guess after that, what, between you and I, we'll we'll decide who won. Sounds good. Okay. So your one minute starts now. So the idea that culture eats strategy for breakfast has a couple of different levels to it. First of all, culture is always there. First thing in the morning, no matter what, you, what you're planning, what you're thinking is going on, culture's already working. You show up at the office, maybe you've got this great idea, you've got this great strategy for creating a new product or a new service or, or, or launching a new division, and you're automatically going to run up against culture. It turns out you got to get permission from X, you've got to get resources from Y, we don't do that here, that's not a product we're interested in. That culture is going to stop you dead in your tracks. Another big part of this is people who think strategically. People who think what they're trying to do is set up a strategy and a set of tactics for their organization, ignore culture at their peril. In other words, culture is part of what you're going to do. Even if you have a great plan, even if you get a bunch of people in a room uh, and they all decide what's going to happen, if you haven't thought about culture ahead of time or use it as part of it, you're still going to lose out. And that's really an important way to think about it. There you go. You're happy with that? You want to do it again? Yeah, no, I'm happy with that. All right. So I'm going to argue the counterpoint, culture does not eat strategy for breakfast. Why why don't you tell me when to start, and then I'll start. Okay, go. Let's address this myth that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. There's been some recent studies that show if you're trying to lose weight, you should actually be skipping breakfast. Uh, In fact, I recently, over the last few weeks, have stopped eating breakfast, and it's had enormous benefit to me. How can we take a quote seriously that uses breakfast, breakfast, as the thing that culture would eat? 
let alone the fact that a good strategy would include the design of a culture, but that is really neither here nor there. The key fact here is, are we talking about breakfast? Breakfast? Are we talking about breakfast? <laughs> I got to give this to you. That is brilliant. That is great. I love it. I concede. I concede. Ronnie Mitra, winner of Point Counterpoint. Thank you for joining us here for our Designing Culture for Microservices Teams episode. Uh, and I happily walk away with the belt. Again. Great show. Had a great time. Breakfast? Seriously? Breakfast? What are you talking about breakfast? This is, this is what you decided to go with? <laughs> I was going to misinterpret it as culture eats strategy for Brexit. Go off into a whole <laughs> Brexit. Brexit. <laughs>